Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Hello, everybody. Gather round. Gather round for the final session. Uh, do take your seats. My name is James Crabtree. I'm the comment editor of the Financial Times. I will be your chairman for the next one hour and 15 minutes, and then you have drinks. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're powering on towards the conclusion of the program. Uh, it's been a terrific two days, touching on a quite bewildering range of topics, so you have to have some sympathy with our panelists this evening, particularly the two who haven't been here for the entire two days, uh, that their task is to try and sum up and bring together, um, and therefore they alone are not going to do this. This is something that I hope you all who've been sitting here and might have one point about what you've heard over the last couple of days uh, to interject that you can throw in during the questions and we can have one last uh, rambunctious discussion. So we've gone through from uh, Gillian's interview right at the very start, talking about Google, through uh, celebrity, through omnivores of various sorts, through uh, businesses and boards, through reinventing yourself, through uh, the last session about morals and ethics, and the same within the financial crisis. And we land up with the closing question, which is, will individuality win out in the mass age? I'm going to go from my right to my left, or your left to your right, um, on the panel, and I'll just introduce them very briefly. First, uh, we're going to have Janet, who I think is the chair of this uh, event, so uh, probably deserves a round of applause anyway. So. Um, in, in addition to that, she's been the managing director of Mediatique and of uh, Universal Studio Networks. Next up, we will have Jake Weisberg, fresh from two days uh, with Slate, the organization um, of which he is chairman. Uh, in upstate New York talking about the, the future of their organization and media. He's also an occasional columnist for the Financial Times and a celebrated author. Then we have Chris uh, from one of your sponsors, Jaguar Land Rover, uh, who is the executive VP for operations, but also in, uh, in a previous life had the even more impressive title of president of Rolls-Royce America, a title which didn't earn him, I'm told, a Rolls-Royce company car. <laughs> and then finally, uh, we have Peter York, uh, a friend of editorial intelligence, a cultural commentator, author of The Sloan Ranger, The Return of the Sloan Ranger, and most, most recently a, a tremendous documentary called The Rise and Fall of the Adman. So let me go first to Janet. What's your reflections on, uh, you've been here for the full two days, so what, what are your, your reflections for, for Tim? Um, I think, the, and the question, is the individual winning or going to win in the mass age? The individual is certainly making an impact, and I think the individual um, has become very disruptive um, to the mass, and it's very clear, and Seth Godin you know, put it very well and quite provocatively, um, that the era of mass communication, the era of mass manufacturing, the era of mass employment, all of these things are over. Um, what the question that he didn't answer, perhaps, and is perhaps unanswerable at this stage, although I think it's the one that's going to vex us for the coming years, is what's going to replace it. Um, it's, you know, very well that we all have to get out individually and market ourselves or individually and define ourselves um, and individually employ ourselves, but actually, you know, and, and even we might um, individually employ others, but our, what is going to replace the mass of employment that we've had before? Certainly um, in media, there is no more you know, mass communication in terms of 
one message going out to a mass of people. It's very much more about personal recommendation. Um, the era of Mad Men is indeed truly over. Um, I think the individual is having a lot of influence. I think the danger, which we were talking about earlier today, and I think somebody in the, in the penultimate session um, asked the question about inequality, and actually it's a danger that came up this morning as well, or a question that came up this morning, in terms of all of the mass political will we're seeing in Tahrir, in terms of all of the, you know, the impact the masses of individuals are having, at least on our attention, are they really having any impact on the power? Is the power still held in a very, very few um, hands? And actually, somebody who sadly couldn't be here, but somebody who I, I had asked to, to speak to us, who did want to speak to us, said that she'd come to, love to come and speak because she's actually obsessed right now about being an individual in an age where five people own everything. Um, and they might be five different people, um, and indeed we're seeing, you know, with the rise of philanthropy and the global fund and, and all of these things happening, um, the rise of people who perhaps aren't even elected, actually, but having a great deal of influence on us. And maybe bringing the masses along with them in what they want to do, and we're fortunate um, that in most instances, and certainly the ones we were talking about, they're trying to do good, um, but still, are they accountable? And so I think the really, really big question has to be, in all of this individuality um, at one end and concentration of power at the other end, where is the accountability? Um, and that would be my question. And then I have to just have a real hats off to Abigail Disney because I think that was just really, really moving and I think we should all salute her again. So, <laughs> Very good. That's a, a good start. Jake, you um, on Slate recently reviewed Eli Paris's book, The Filter Bubble, and, and sort of had a go at the the thesis that we're all increasingly uh, uh, sort of prone before uh, giant uh, filtering new media. So tell us a little bit about that and how that relates to this topic. Yeah. Um, well, Jim, thank you. And thank you for having me here. And I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've just shown up, so I can't sum anything up. But perhaps a <laughs> slight outside perspective will be valuable at the, uh, at the 11th hour. Um, uh, Eli Pariser, who is the, the founder of MoveOn.org, which is one of the um, really influential and effective political advocacy groups that sprang up in the Internet um, a couple of election cycles ago, um, has this new book which argues a kind of fashionable thesis that all of the tools of personalization on the Internet are making us more narrow people, that we're, you know, we're, we're, just, we're only getting perspectives that we agree with, we're only finding out increasingly about things that we are already interested in, you know, our particular passions or hobbies, and that we're, we're becoming really more parochial because of technology. And um, I guess I'm, uh, I'm, I'm skeptical of his skepticism. Um, I think this is one of the, the sort of class of problems that are interesting theoretical problems, but are not necessarily actual problems in real life. And uh, I was critical of the book because I think it's entirely unempirical, as a lot of this sort of cyber pessimism tends to be. You know, you take some plausible theory about how civil society or democracy or individuality is going to be destroyed, projecting current trends in technology forward, and then you sort of jump from there to, well, and since this is happening, how are we going to cope with it? Or, you know, look at all the terrible effects of it. But... Uh, uh, my starting point for this is, you know, one often has to start from one's own experience. Um, the way I use technology, the, the way I use the Internet to get information has uh, drastically broadened my range of sources, the kinds of information, the kinds of perspectives I get, 
And you can take a sort of almost any example, but, you know, covering the Arab Spring, which is a, a, an event that I've sort of been caught up in and tremendously excited about, partly because it does frame this epic struggle that we're living through for uh, liberty and freedom of expression in the, in the age of technology. But, you know, some years ago, I would have gotten pretty much all of my information about what was going on from the New York Times and, you know, network news. And not that those aren't excellent sources of information, but because of Twitter, and I could go on about why I think Twitter is so great, I, I'm in touch through a number of personal filters that I've set up with all sorts of Arab sources, mostly who write in English because I don't speak Arabic. But I've been getting a perspective from, from people who are activists in Egypt, in Syria. I've even gotten to know a few of them by kind of corresponding them in this way. And I, I, I feel that I have a more rounded perspective. Now, you could say, and I'll stop in a minute, you know, you could say, well, I'm a journalist, I'm reaching out to get all this kind of information, but I don't think we should be so quick to assume that people like us are using the tools of technology only to you know, recede into their rabbit warrens and avoid anything uncomfortable or difficult. I'm not saying that couldn't happen. It's one of the earliest theoretical worries around the Internet, um, expressed by a whole range of thinkers from Cass Sunstein to um, Nicholas Negroponte. It's entirely possible. I just don't think it's happening. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's a reasonable question to ask whether or not, you know, it requires a large amount of agency, at not just a job in journalism, but it requires a lot of... Uh, one of the topics that came up over the course of the two days was curiosity. In a panel yesterday, you have to be curious, you have to be skilled, and you have to have a lot of agency to live in the world that that you, uh, you posit. So are you still optimistic that this is true for, um, for most people as opposed to... Well, I, I guess, the, yeah, I mean, the question, James, is, is compared to what or compared to when? You know, not so long ago. Well, if you go back, a, a, you know, a little longer, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, everyone lived in a bubble. It was almost impossible not to live in a bubble. The people who managed to escape their intellectual bubbles, you know, are, are our heroes today, you know, whether it's... Galileo or, or David Hume or Adam Smith, um, and even in, in relatively recent times, you know, again, the, sort, the, the range of information that was available to most people was pretty limited. You could get television news from three networks in the United States that, that shared a kind of centrist outlook, a kind of liberal consensus outlook on the world. And if you didn't share that or you wanted a broader range of sources, well, you probably couldn't get it really until, until quite recently. And in truth, I would say the Internet is probably doing both things at once. On the one hand, it is enabling this, this, this big, uh, big range of opportunity around information. And ordinary people, not just journalists, not just people who have a kind of aggressive curiosity events, are being exposed. There's data that supports this. Are being exposed to a wider range of sources. However, it is true that they are also more likely to associate, probably online, with people who share their perspective. You know, you can, there's not a lot of evidence about what's really happening. We're in the early stages of these tools. I mean, the idea that per, news is even going to be personalized is still at a pretty theoretical level. Are, not many people really get their news through Facebook. I mean, there are people who don't follow the news and are on Facebook, thus get their only news through Facebook. Um, but, you know, there, I mean, in this, this book, this book, The Filter Bubble, Eli Periser makes a big deal out of the fact that search results are being filtered. If you do a Google search, you will not necessarily get precisely the same results 
as I get if I do the same Google search. But they're clearly doing a lot of filtering around commercial opportunities, as makes sense. You, if I search for restaurant recommendations, they know enough about me from the cookie they've planted and, and from, uh, uh, from my IP address to know that, you know that I'm in New York City and I'm probably looking for a restaurant in my neighborhood and not one in, in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, and that's good, and that makes the service more useful. But I don't think, and I've tried to test this out a little bit, I don't think they're filtering information in any meaningful way around ideological perspectives, around psychological perspectives. Again, it's a sort of science fiction, sort of theoretical worry that I don't think is really quite possible yet. Very good. Let me bring Chris in now. Um, I mean, you may not have been given a Rolls-Royce company car, but you are in charge of two uh, premium uh, brands, and therefore you must have to deal with some of the most uh, demanding uh, individuals out there. So what's your reflection on this topic? Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, you know, it's interesting. If I, if I try to answer the question of whether individuality will win over the mass age, in, in many respects we hope it does, in a sense, because individuality is a, is a great field leveler. You know, as a, as a, as a relatively small brand in a, in a market where there's 35 auto manufacturers selling hundreds of models that can spend lots and lots of money, some upwards of a billion dollars in, in traditional media. We just don't have those budgets. So what individuality in, our, in the sense of how we can communicate with these customers, it allows us to, to level the field. You know, we can go at these customers one-on-one. -on -one. And not while we can't quite literally touch every customer, if we look at the volume of vehicles that we need to sell to be, be successful in this market, we can talk to a lot of them on a one-on-one -on -one basis, whether it's through social media, which, which we've touched on a number of times here, or whether it's at events, or whether it's at, at pre-purchase communication, whatever it might be, it is something that works in our favor as a, as a manufacturer. Um, because it's just, it's just one of those things that we know if we can get to the customer at the right time with the right message, and then they ultimately purchase our vehicle, we can then keep reinforcing that, that cycle of, of, of ownership. Uh, and, it's, and it's quite good. It's, been, it's, it's really been a, 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 a good thing for us as, a, as the brands that I represent. Because you know, luxury brands, you need to have that specialness that, that, that you mentioned earlier to, to really be able to talk to these people on a one-on-one on -one basis. That, you know, in the, in the auto industry, we, we like to think that we can personalize vehicles and people will wait, quite frankly, for a vehicle to come that's personalized. That's not the case here in the U.S. People like to, to, to shop online or, or, or research and, and what they ultimately want to do, though, is be able to walk into the dealership and walk out that day with a vehicle. That is the nature of our business. It's not the same in, in Europe and a lot of places around the world. So what we have to do is make sure that we can personalize everything else that has to do with buying a car. And that's really kind of our goal and, and, and what we set out to do. So the, the, uh, the type of person we were talking about with JK, uh, uh, individuals with lots of agency who are demanding and well-informed are the type of people you have to deal with all the time. We do. You know, you, you, in a sense, you, you, you live by the sword, die by the sword in that regard. You have to, to make sure you've got the right tools out there. You also have to understand it's a community, so people do talk on communities. And, and we have to make sure that we are, again, getting our message across, whatever it might be, uh, to make sure that they, are, they, are, they, have, they hopefully become advocates for the brand. Uh, they can influence others' decisions, or they can defend, quite frankly, the, the, their purchase decisions. So we, we think the tools are out there that can help us in our business. Very good. Now, finally, to the far left, uh, not uh, politically or anything like that. <laughs> Peter, what's been your, you've been here for uh, all of the two days, so what has I been your reflections? I don't, want, I don't want to be at all non-positive, but that's what we do. 
Brits. That's where experts are being non-positive, so I'm going to be non-positive. It seems churlish in such an optimistic, generous country to be non-positive. <laughs> but I should say um, that some of my prejudices have been reinforced. My prejudices are against three-isms. One is entrepreneurialism. I'm very much against entrepreneurialism. I'm very much against individualism. And I'm very much against creativism. And by entrepreneurialism, I mean the George Bush joke. I mean the uncritical rhetoric of airport books, which have entrepreneur in embossed metal eyes coming at your letters, or CEO coming at you, because, and which do down the idea of collaboration or, you know, cooperation or large organizations, or the public sector of any kind. I'm very much against that kind of entrepreneurialism. I'm against individualism when it's sort of infantile solipsism of the because you're worth it variety, or you're a beautiful person. I'm against that. And I'm against creativity in its sort of finger-painting vanity form. I'm against it as a word for a series of sectors that lucky people like me work in. Do you know, I think creativity is something else. Um, uh, meaning I'm against all the false isms represented by those ideas. Conversely, I am, I so am for entrepreneurs, real entrepreneurs, who take real risks, invent real things, create real wealth. Do you know, We've been he hearing about false entrepreneurialism and the idea of false wealth creators in earlier sessions. Um, knowing that most people in any good society couldn't and shouldn't be entrepreneurs. Do you know, um, um, our colleague from The Economist was talking about precisely that, that failed societies of all kinds boast a large number of people who might be classified as entrepreneurs by default of all the things that make good societies good. So, if everybody was an entrepreneur, how would buses run and sewers work? I ask that as a perfectly serious question. But I am, and on the matter of individuality, I am so on for individuality, for people who are prepared to work it out for themselves and to follow their own instincts. But I think there's a high cost to real individuality, and it's really high cost, a real high cost of entry, because you have to have been, in order to be free, you have to be, know what repression is like. I'm all for a bit of repression, by the way, because I think it helps <laughs> uh, people work their way to freedom. And if you want to work your way out of received opinion and conventional wisdom, you have to have been there. You really have to have been into those terrible pits and know what they mean. Do you know, in other words, it's not the infantile delusion. Um, so real individuality is hard won. It's born of knowledge and conviction. It's grown-up stuff. It's not refined cultural consumption. You don't get to be an individual because your cultural consumption is ever so refined. You get to be an individual because you've been through there and out the other side and you're prepared to speak out and fight for what, whatever it is, your enthusiasm, your business, whatever. And I, so I do believe that, I mean, personalization is narrowing. Do you know, HBO, does HBO make me a better, more refined person? 
does it, you know, I love it, the HBO product, but I'd rather have what, if I had to, you know, decide between the false individualism of the very good, very marketable product of HBO and the overall benefits of the BBC, because this is a live debate with a certain kind of person in Britain, I know what I prefer. Um, uh, real creativity is amazing. People who can amaze and seduce and delight and inspire in any way, from the arts to engineering, are worth, worth their weight in gold. But it isn't the idea that if, for instance, and God bless them, everyone, um, if you work here, you are, in lovely JWT, God bless them, you are necessarily a creative person. That's all I'd say. And I'm not alone in this. There are, you know, in believing this, and there are American sources who would support this. First, Thomas Frank. How many of you have read the work of Thomas Frank? Oh, here, in the, in the heart of America. I mean, the worship, should every, every man, Jack, and Lady Jack of you should have read Thomas Frank. He's the most wonderful, brilliant person. And his One Market Under God explains the rhetoric of market populism, of an entrepreneurialism in a completely forensic and brilliant way. He's so not Michael Moore, and he's so worth having. He completely undercuts the idea of market populism and the popular entrepreneur. And for individualism, read The Cult of the Amateur by Andrew Keane, who is only English. You need to put your microphone a little... Keane. Keane. Oh, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> Just to make um, sure everyone's and, um, awake. And... and Little Malcolm Gladwell, and he undercuts the idea of the genius entrepreneur by explaining that most received geniuses are the product of familial good fortune, good luck of the right time, right place variety, plus 10,000 hours. um, Jake was tapping me on the shoulder. Totally unserious point, but you just put me in mind of one of the great remarks of our former president, George W. Bush, where what he he said... uh, you know, the problem with the French is they don't even have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> well, and the wonderful thing is that he meant it so sincerely. <laughs> he, re- he really did think that the cheese-eating surrender monkeys <laughs> could not possibly harbor that. I- I've-, I've taken it that it wasn't a joke. <laughs> Let's, um, let, me, let me bring the conversation back. So we've got a range of... Jake was quite optimistic. It sounds to me like Peter is relatively it's pessimistic. It's a hard uh, fight. You, you've, uh, it's not as easy as you think to be an individual. Jake, when we were talking just before here, you said that there were threats to um, individualism uh, that were in the race to, to worry about Google and various things which didn't matter. You said that there were real threats to the, the, the sort of ability of individuals to create themselves in this moment. So why don't we talk about that a little bit, and then we can go out to the audience first. Yeah, first. I mean, to me, this is the great battle of our era. This is the new Cold War, the, the fight for, for liberty, for freedom of expression in, in the Internet age, you know, and I'm sort of, I'm haunted by the idea that my children are going to ask me, what did you do in the war, Daddy? You know, which were you on the, you're on the right side of this battle. What are the things we should really be worried about? We should be worried about censorship in the Internet age, about the, the, technology, the tools that technology gives to dictators to restrict information in China. We should be worried about the suppression of, of freedom of expression using technology. In China is a particularly good example of almost all of this. We should be worried about cyber warfare and cyber security. The Chinese are 
attacking all sorts of websites, all sorts of uh, in independent sources of information, not just within their own geographic borders. And I think we should be very much worried about the economic basis for independent information and journalism. Right. Clearly, the, the, the independent media is threatened in our lifetimes in a way it has never been threatened before, simply by the economic transformation wrought by this technology. Without independent journalism, without serious journalism done by the FT and lots of other places, you know, we will not be free people. But, yeah. And yet yeah. you were bemoaning a, a time earlier when there were only three places to get your news. Yeah. And you're right, there were only three places to get your news. And I was going to ask you, now that there are 5,000 places to get your news, what's the outcome? And here you are bemoaning the, or, or concerned with, and a concern I share vastly about um, the, the financial stability, the, the long-term viability um, of independent journalism. And actually, I think one of the best points that was made yesterday um, was by Emily Bell, who said, you know, here we are talking about financial models for journalism and, and newspapers and how, you know, we, the news journalists were going to survive when actually people in the developing world thought, you know, all they cared about was not being shot for their journalism. And what they cared about was, you know, if they, if they actually were making money out of their journalism, by necessarily anybody who was doing that was corrupt. So, you know, there, there's kind of broader issues, and I, I worry about... I agree that it's great that the, all the information is available, and at the same time we worry enormously um, about the independence and the accessibility of, of the actually um, information that we as citizens need in order to challenge those centers of power. I think you, I think you put that very well, Janet. I mean, the, the, um, you know, on the one hand, you have this tremendous multiplicity of voices, but voices are not the same thing as, as reporting, and reporting around the world is very expensive, and it's, not, it's never really been an economically viable or self-supporting activity. And now, because the aspects of, new, of, of the big media organizations that were good businesses are being undermined, everyone is cutting back. I mean, The Guardian announced more cuts this week. I mean, the best news organizations in the world are just going to do, they are doing less of what they used to do in terms of reporting around the world. It's, when you talk about um, the journalism that happens in those countries, it's a more complicated picture. There are places, you know, in India where newspapers are still growing, you know, and there are places where, as you say, the, you know, there's this fundamental battle to be able to do journalism at all. And sort of they, have, they haven't yet gotten to the question of whether you can build a business around it. But in our, you know, in our advanced democratic liberal societies, we have built businesses around it, and we depend on those to provide us with information. It can't be replaced by, you know, blogging and tweeting, most of which is, you know, riffing off the, the, the reporting of these big news organizations. So, yes, I'm tremendously concerned about it, but then I work for the Washington Post company, so I would be. <laughs> let, me, let me bring Chris back in. I mean, what, what, um, if we're thinking about threats uh, that worry you in this, um, in this moment, I mean, what, what, what comes to mind? I mean, Jake was saying we're worrying about, the, worrying about the wrong things, but I mean, is there anything particularly in the world of business that, that sort of worries you? As it relates to the topic, I'd say, I guess the worry is, is that, going back to my earlier points, we, we have the opportunity to target people individually, but with a with plethora of choices out there from a media standpoint, if, if we don't do it correctly, we could have missed the mark. And, and that's just just what we have to deal with today. It was very simple in the past. It was the network TV, it was the newspapers, and it was the magazines. And now it's all of those plus 4,000 websites, plus aggregators, plus search engine optimizations. It, everything that goes with it is that that becomes a little daunting 
for, for us. But we, we feel if we can do it right, that's, 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 that's hopefully our ace in the hole. Very good. Well, let me just, we'll go out just in one second, but Peter, just one final word to come back to you. I mean, what, um, what worries you in particular about this, uh, this, this moment? I think you have to and ask. And your microphone, since you don't have one. I think you have to ask the question that's been asked to some extent earlier about the, whatever the mechanic of it, the extraordinary transfer of wealth and the creation of polarization, which has been broadly masked by a number of um, uh, and financial uh, um, instruments over the, the long haul, and ask whether that is going to be true also in emerging countries, because that's a denial of individuality if ever there was one, because the great creator, the great engine of a certain kind of individuality has been the social mobility produced in Western countries post-war by a certain kind of widely shared prosperity. We're looking at, we're looking at winner-takes-all solutions in the West and likewise. Well, it's a, the emerging countries are winner-take-all now. Are they going to stay that way? Because that's the way to kill individuality. Very good. All right. We've had career paths, media, business, and the case against entrepreneurs. Let me, um, let's go and take a few points from the floor. And this can either be a question to the panel or if there's been a burning thought over the last two days that you, uh, you simply want to unburden yourself of. Now is the moment with only 20 minutes to go to the close. So I see the hand of Derek Wyatt. Um, reaching for the sky. Do we have a microphone for Derek? I'll, I'll look for some other hands. This as well. is really Derek. a question to Chris. I think Rolls-Royce is BMW, is that right? That's correct. It's a, so it's is there a difference between Protestant Germany and uh, multi-faith India in the way in which you are managed uh, by Tata Motors uh, compared to Rolls-Royce? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say that there's a, there's a more, without any... No disrespect to how BMW runs the business. I'd say it's a more personal business in the way that, that Tata approaches it. Um, if, you, if you listen to the, the senior managers uh, from Tata, and we're part of Tata Motors, uh, they will talk a lot about relationships. Um, now, BMW says those from time to time, depending on what the, what the need might be. But you get a sense from uh, how, the, at least my experience with the Indian organization, is how they approach the people as well as the dealers and, and the customers. I think it's, it's more personal in that regard. Um, we had, the, in the interim, well, we're currently owned by Tata. Just prior to that, we were part of Ford Motor Company, and we were sold in 2008. And Ford is a big conglomerate, and, and you lost some of that personalization. I mean, they were a mass-market car company. But when we got to Tata, they recognized that for a luxury brand to be truly successful in the U.S., you need to give them a little rope. You need to give them a little pat on the back every now and then. And, and also provide them some guidance when necessary. But, and so we see a more personal relationship now. Very good. Let me get a couple of more points. There's a lady at the back, and I... Um, another girl. Hi. Um, I just wanted to... Say, yeah, say who you are. Just... Oh, my name is Marjorie Case. Nice to meet you. Uh, thank you for a wonderful conference. I'm sorry I only got to attend today, but I found it very interesting. I was wondering if the panel could talk about the dangers of sort of raising a generation of narcissists in this pursuit of individuality. Very good. Well, that's a great topic. Let me just take a cut. Let me take one, one, one more. Um, and I, again, say who you are, if you would. Uh, yeah, Rosie Millard. Um, it strikes me, and Chris put his finger on it, sort of, that um, individuality is a very politically economic class-ridden thing. 
The other day I went on a ship called The World, which travels the world where you buy apartments on this ship and travel around the world. There are 200 apartments on it. Each one is worth about $3 million. I interviewed somebody who had an apartment and I said, why is it different from being on a cruise? And he looked absolutely horrified at me. He said, if you're on a cruise, you have to queue for the tender to get to the shore. We don't want to be in queues. We want to be looked after individually. We can order a smoothie made of any fruit or any vegetable at any time, anywhere in the world on this ship. And that, to me, is the really dreadful side of, of individuality. And if you really mean that you know, individuality is the goal, you're going to have to spread that bespoke nature to absolutely everyone on the planet, and that is obviously impossible, because, as Peter said, you, the sewers wouldn't work and the libraries wouldn't open and the hospitals wouldn't work. I think that's a, that's a great point. They work very well together. So are we in danger of um, raising a generation who are infantile, that. ridiculous narcissists who want every type of smoothie they can have in one go? Janet? Nice to say, what do you mean, raising a new generation? Of <laughs> just <laughs> Dominique Strauss-Kahn, Anthony Weiner. Who, what are these people if they're not narcissists? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, <laughs> nothing, never enough. So raising a generation, probably, but how did, how did we manage that before without all of the individualism? or individuality. We were talking about, yes, and the generation of millennials who have each been brought up thinking that, you know, everything is marvelous, nobody's better than anybody else, you're all winners in school, everybody's grades are fantastic, and what does that do to us? And how are we going to create the, the, the mass of manufacturing jobs, for instance, that we need when everybody's out filling their potential? Um, well, Jake, what do you... Well, I mean, I think both of those points, you know, sort of point to a... a, a narcissism or a separation that is class-driven rather than generationally driven or, or uh, psychologically driven, which is, you know, it's, a, it's clearly a, a phenomenon that, that people of great wealth, first of all, there's a class of people who have wealth relative to everyone else that they can entirely cut themselves off from common experiences, which really wasn't possible in the same way until very recently. You know, even, even very wealthy people, I mean, people who's were CEOs, first of all, the, you know, the amount of money they earned relative to workers was, you know, m uh, much smaller. And, you know, their, their children were more likely to go to school with, with people who work, worked in their plants or whatever. You know, you have this pulling, pulling away. And I think the, 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 what I'm hoping will reassert itself or a force of sanity which will kind of emerge, it's miserable for everyone. I mean, it's not just miserable for the people who are left out of this. It's miserable for the people who are, who are included in it. Because you're, you're isolated. Those people really are living in a bubble. It's not technology-driven, although, you know, there are technological aspects to it. Technolo technological change may be driving a lot of the economics of it. What's that? Well, they don't know how miserable they are. <laughs> but don't you think they are? You clearly, think they're, you clearly think it's a miserable life to have your identity defined by the ability to order any fruit or vegetable smoothie at any... You know, if that's your, if that, if that's your goal as, you know, as, as a human being, you're miserable whether you know it or not. Okay. Chris, is there a downside to um, the, the type of... You know, a world of infinite choice where you can have your uh, Land Rover in any color you want? No, we'll sell a car to anybody at this point. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll take the glasses half full approach on narcissism in that regard. Is, is that, you know, narcissists by their nature like to stand out. They like to be kind of out there a little bit. And, and while we don't necessarily say our vehicles are necessarily out there, 
they, they're not like everything else. And so it can play, you can play into that hand if you want, whether it's a Range Rover or whether it's an XJ, they have a look about them that they're not cookie cutter. And I think that there are opportunities if you play it right. So I, I, would, I, I would see the positive in that. I understand the negative and, and what the challenge is as, as manufacturers as we look forward. Our product plans are five, six, seven, eight, nine years out. So if you have to think that you start crossing generational lines at that point in time, today's 45-year-old is, is today's 35-year-old. So in, in 10 years, then it's 55 and 45, and what do they want? And that's always the challenge. You know, one of the, the when James and I chatted on Friday, and, and one of the things I thought about is what's the, one of the most individual things you as a, as a consumer, all of us in the room have, is your cell phone. So as manufacturers, we're always challenged to know what's the next cell phone or mobile device that's going to be popular in three years' time. If you think about the phone you had three years ago, what was it? It's probably not what you have today, and you expect it, though, in three years' time to make sure it fits in your car. So those are the challenges we are dealing with, and that's a very individual choice of a person. And, and so we wrestle with it. But again, I'd say the optimistic view of life is that we feel we have products in the future that should answer those sorts of questions. Peter? The idea of narcissism. <laughs> I think there is an easy narcissism for young people made up of insecurity plus the new technology plus the demands of self-branding for job-getting. So the whole business of self-branding, and there's a sort of 24-year-old whose name, I'm afraid I've forgotten, who advises people, and is on telly in America all the time, and he tells you how to self-brand. And the self-branding is completely content-free. It's all about using the technology right, making sure that your name's up front. Because actually the components of your brand are made from a kit of parts. And in this re rehearsing, in a boastful way, a kit of parts, I did this, and then I graduated that, and then I did that. And you look at any MBA CV, anyway, I used to employ those kind of people, and they came, and they, I thought, the, f the, f the first one I saw, God, this, uh, this young person is a genius. You know, they've done all that, and they excelled in extreme support at the extreme sport at the age of nine and then you started to see more of them and they got all, all got the same bloody thing they'd all bought a self-brand on a cv from a kit of parts that encourages baseless narcissism and it's um, as the job market gets harder there'll be more of that and of course facebook you know encourages maddest face you know meaningless baseless narcissism Jim Long, um, there's a set of individuals that uh, perhaps you've been alluding to targeting uh, something called, in, some, uh, called influentials. Uh, Roper identified them since 1945 as those 10% roughly of the population that uh, are involved in three or more public activities, say writing a letter to an editor, uh, uh, attending a school board meeting, but they psychographically trend higher. Chris, you know this, perhaps you can uh, uh, give me your views on that. How important are, is that segment of the population to you now, and how do you see the sort of technology either increasing their influence and importance to you or diminishing their importance. I mean, this is also goes to editorially, Jacob, uh, as a publisher too, but they're also the first people who are, you know, into the environment and very conscious of foreign affairs and kind of trend, uh, help shape, you know, legislative agendas and public policy as well. And Julia wanted to say a word. You've brought us all together, so what's your, um, what's your take on all of this? 
Well, I, wa- I wanted to ask a question about faith and that, you know, quite a lot comes into the discussion periodically about whether faith, the absence of faith in some communities is being replaced by, you know, an obeisance and a love of technology and these new communities. But the other thing is also surely we want ideally a mixed economy in which we both celebrate and typify the individual that people know who they are that they can personalize but equally that we belong because going back to Mr Strauss-Kahn the thing that alienates people that makes them go off the rails the the thing that corrupts is the cult of individuality that you can cut about the place without any reference to anybody else in an air-conditioned car not belonging so these are my two questions where is faith is there too much of it in one direction not in another And equally, surely it's not two legs good, four legs bad, that we want either mass or we want the individual. Vic, do you want to kick us off? Um, Sure. Well, I mean, I'm not sure I can connect those two questions, Manson, separately. (laughs) Why don't you take two bites of the apple then? Um, On the the first question, you know, um, I actually think the the designation of influentials as a a sort of uh, social category in relation to media is a real one. And in fact... At Slate, which is my magazine, you know, our sort of pitch to advertisers is that our readers are the new influentials and that we define influence in a slightly different way in an age of technology. It's use of social media in a certain way. It's, you know, it's kind of engagement and response to writing. I mean, that's, you know, it gets at the heart of why doing media or journalism on the Internet is so different from doing it in print. I, I read a story not long ago for a print magazine, which I hadn't done in years, although it used to be what I did for a living. And it was a bizarre, anachronistic experience where I finished the story and not till, you know, weeks later was it accessible to anyone, by which point I totally moved on and had no more interest in it. And if anybody wanted to respond to it, you know, they were going to mail a letter to the editor. I mean, I'm so used to now having written on the Internet for 15 years to have immediate engagement with people who attack me but also, you know, have something interesting to say in the comments section, who blog about what I'm writing, who write a message on Twitter about it. And it's, you know, that's sort of the fun of what I do. But there still is this category, you know, there is a a, a sort of more docile mass of people who consume information. And then there is a category of people who do um, have a more active relationship to it. And, you know, on the Internet, you have this range of how you're going to react, but because you're at a keyboard, you have the ability to immediately act on it in all sorts of ways. On the, yeah. the, on the on Julia's question, I mean, I don't, I don't do... Belonging and faith. Yeah, I don't do faith so much. I do reason more. Um, but um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a big faith person. But um, on the community point, I think uh, it's, it's absolutely right that people who look to technology to supply the, the absent communal feeling in their lives are, are doomed to... to frustration and in fact doesn't do that at all it's in no way a substitute the contact you know your facebook is is useful in many ways and probably awful in many ways but it is not you know you you are not having an experience with your friends or your community when you're relating to them on facebook or you are having an experience that's so different that it in no way substitutes or fills the the human need for participation and, and community yeah, very good. So, yeah. who else wants to? Oh, I, I, going back to the question, I, I'm going to skip the faith question. We'll sell a car to anybody. <laughs> I'll say that again. Yeah. The, um, 
in terms of the, the, the influentials, back to the, the original question, you know, in, in, in the old days in the car industry, the influentials were the marketers themselves. They put a message out there. They're, they're obviously the automotive journalists that would put a message out there. They're your neighbors would tell you about a, a vehicle, among other people. But we've taken it to the point now where we have identified what, who we think are influentials that can help us with our business. We are in the process of launching a vehicle Range Rover Evoque today where we, where we uniquely went out to what we call city shapers. There's five here in New York City. There's some in L.A. We have them in Milan, Shanghai, London. And those individuals have followings. In the old days, they're who, following... Who, who are they? Uh, I'll, I'll name one here. Uh, Georgina Chapman, Marquesa Design. So one of the... Uh, here in New York has hundreds of thousands of people that follow her on Twitter or social media or, or whatever it might be. There's a socialite here in New York called Bevy Smith who, is, who does the same thing. Darrell Rivas, football player here in New York, uh, a New York Jet. So we have those type of individuals, and, and some of that, that we don't know, quite frankly, which is even the better thing, is that you can get people that, that we wouldn't typically have access to that have followers that can help you get a message out there, subtly in, in most cases, uh, but it's an opportunity that, that we wouldn't have been able to afford in, in a past life. We, we can't afford to put a TV celebrity in front of our, our, all of our vehicles. It's just not cost-effective for us. So we find opportunities with influentials to really help us go with our business. Very good. If you, do you guys want to come in on this? If not, yeah. I'll, I'll... I'll come in on the faith thing, um, first of all. But, and to say I agree, actually, on both fronts, to be honest, on the faith thing, not my subject. Um, on the community thing, I think, again, something that was interesting um, that came up yesterday and whether Facebook is a substitute for community, personally, I don't think so at all, and all of that. But then we were talking about um, groups of Twitter followers, and it seems to be a common theme emerging that... You know, having a group of, of people who actually self-select as, as Twitter followers up to a certain number um, gets a really, really great community going and a great response. But once that number multiplies by a vast number, and the specific um, example was Neil Gaiman, um, but it was actually repeated quite a few times once it, you know, when you have 40,000 Twitter followers, you have kind of 8,000 quite active people, and then suddenly you're in a million Twitter, Twitter followers and you're still having 8,000 active people. And there is something about a self-selecting community, whatever the means of communication, um, I think is strong. And the other thing that was, you know, about technology that came through yesterday as well, um, and actually Jordan Roth said, um, and it applies at so many levels and throughout so many things that I, I have done in, in my career, is that technology is never the solution to the problem. If you look to technology, and it was, he was talking about Spider-Man in particular, but anything that, or, or te technology being wow, here's a new technology, what can we do with it? Technology is a tool that um, enables one to do other things like communicate or communicate in new and interesting ways, but it is a tool that needs to serve something else. Very good. Peter, did you want to come in? And I saw a range of hands at the back. Psychographics. Um, I grew up on psychographics. I'm by background a market researcher. It's inherently rather fraudulent. If you peel back psychographics in... For those who don't know, what, what are psychographics? Psychographics is the idea that you can divide up and segment people on the basis of inherent psychological long-term traits. You can discover people who are venturesome or... Um, entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial. Or, entrepreneurial or any of those things. Creative. And an awful lot of psychographic segmentation is explained by demographics and luck. You know... It's hard, rather boring fact. As for faith, um, I'm Church of England. 
that means I never have to worry about religion or faith at all. We, don't, <laughs> we, we just don't think about it. We like nice architecture and nice singing and that's all. What I do believe in is reason and a mixed economy. Very good. Lucy. Well, I just have a, uh, Lucy Marcus, I just had a brief um, question, I suppose. I mean, in listening to this panel and also over the past couple of days, one of the things that strikes me is I've never particularly thought of myself as an optimistic person, but I kind of think now perhaps I am because, you know, we could fret about some of the things that we're discussing, but to my mind, I sort of feel like the cyclical nature of things, you know, bubbles burst and authenticity, you know, people brand themselves, but actually then the outlier and the thing that's extraordinary is someone who's quite authentic. I mean, you're quite authentic. You are you. You are couldn't you, are you be created. Are you looking created. at me in particular? Or <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I don't think Peter, I mean, I, you couldn't create Peter <laughs> on, a, on a piece of paper. And so that's what makes him outstanding, and thus <laughs> he's sitting there and not somebody else. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? So in the end, I actually feel fairly optimistic because I think, you know, in the end, it's authenticity that will win and bubbles will burst. And if, you know, people can want their shakes or smoothies or whatever, and that makes them happy and so on. But, but actually, I, I kind of feel that, I'm, that in the end, people aren't as Hobbesian as we sort of paint them in a way. And that, that actually, you know, nature lets good stuff sprout even further. Otherwise, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, things will be horrendous. But I, I actually think that things might actually be better in the end than we think. It's just a... Just in listening, it all sounds pretty grim. I like that. Well, look, let, let's get a few points from the floor because I'm seeing a lot of hands. So um, you've heard enough from us on the panel. So the gentleman uh, in the white T-shirt, and we'll go over. Hi, uh, Alan Gemmell. We've chatted a lot about the Arab Spring, but I wonder what the panel thinks uh, or what you think about um, an Iraq war vote if it took place next month. Do you think we could mobilize more people and that might change uh, a government's decision to go to war? Very good. Well, let, let, again, let me, let me go round the room. So can you take the microphone to the, the... There's a couple of people at the back there, and I might just go back to the panel and... Thank you. Um, Aline Felder again. Uh, the question for Chris. You talked about using the influential's model to you know, sell your vehicles in North America. How do you adapt that model for wealthy individuals in Asia and in Latin America? And how have you made that demographic shift as the markets become more diversified and able to enjoy your vehicles? Well, why don't you answer that one and then we'll... Um... I don't have direct responsibility over those markets, but, I, but as a company we have a similar strategy in, in the sense that, you know, it's, even though the, our, our volumes multiply when you add those other markets, China and, and, and Latin America, Brazil and, and Russia, um, you know, it's the same principles. We, we should be able to to talk to these people on a more individual basis, pardon the expression, we're probably overusing the word individual. But I, I think that we're not going to be as large as the Volkswagens of the world, the BMW groups of the world, the Fords, the General Motors, whatever it might be. But we, the, the principles apply. We just have to make sure we have the right product in the market that we can, we can actually deliver to the individual in, in, in those, or the customer in those markets. So it's, 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 it's a similar concept. They just do it, quite frankly, in a different language than we do it here in the U.S. Uh, but we're prepared for growth in those other areas. It, and China, as is, is, is you indicated, is just a huge growth market for us. Let's, um, there's a couple, couple of questions at the back or points to be made. Uh, Jim McDonald, I'm, uh, as a strategist of brands and media for a number of years, I, I actually look at what we're posturing and reverse it. I think the reality is the individual is killing the mass age. 
We've seen it in media. We're seeing it in brands. That, that actually the ability to become different and, and to be able to customize what you do is actually destroying the mass age which we've had for the better part of 50 years, both in the media world and the brand world. How would you respond to that, both on, on the brand side as well as on the media side in terms of, I mean, you just talked about the print stuff, Jacob, that, you know, it's a dying industry across the board and... You know, we're here at J. Walter Thompson, and the reality is the media world is trying to figure out how to survive in a world where it's all about individuals. Thank you. Do you want to pick it up? I have a go at that. Bennett, you would say you wanted to come back to that one in a minute. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very good point, and I think I tend to agree with you. I mean, that you know, when the, the, the heyday of fear of, of, you know, mass man was the totalitarian age, you know, it was the 1930s, and, and rightly so. You know, I guess the, the more interesting question now is... Does our um, uh, vaunting of individualism conceal a deeper conformity? And do all of you know all of your customers who are you know who you are um, treating as individuals because that's how they think of themselves? Are they really individualistic? Going maybe to Peter's point in the way you know not everybody may think of himself as an ind individual rather than par as part of a herd, but it doesn't mean he really is. Um, but I agree with you in terms of sensibility. Peter, this is something that you, your documentary, The Rise and Fall of the Adman, the, uh, this is something that you dug into, isn't it? The, uh... I don't believe that, <laughs> I think it's more difficult, uh, for, for instance, for advertising agencies, obviously much more difficult, more demanding, and you can't have such long lunches as a result. But I think, you know, I think you'll, um, I think you'll live it through somehow, and I think it's a better... Kind, it's a better more stretching set of challenges that you face. And we're not talking about a world in which everybody is an organic farm of one. We're talking staggering achievements of mass media and mass manufacturing continue to go on, but the model whereby you make money from them has changed. The, the underlying physicals of very large-scale media on transmit very large-scale media still, forgetting, um, forgetting the rest, still exist. And very massive manufacturing still exists. It's transferred. It's now somewhere else. But we're not in a real age of absolute fragmented individualism. Um, uh, and God forbid that we ever should be. Janet, you wanted to come in, I think, on... Yeah, I love the question about Iraq. And before I do that, can I say... I mean, just what an amazingly diverse conversation this is, if we're having a question about Iraq and a question about brand building all in the same um, session. is kind of amazing in itself. Um, but the question about Iraq I thought was fantastic because, um, and just to repeat back, because it was a while ago, if, we, if Iraq was now, would there be a greater um, turnout, I suppose, a greater show of people, and would it have an influence on whether we went to war or not? And actually, yes, I think there probably would because we can all communicate faster. Um, but there was a huge turnout of people in cities all over the world, over Iraq. Millions of people marched all over the world. A million people in London, half a million people in Edinburgh, I think millions in New York, millions in Los Angeles. People were really, really angry and angry enough to go out on the streets for something that was not personal for the first time in a really long time and not for personal gain. And yet we were all ignored. So the, your question, yes, we would have a much greater turnout, I think. I think that you're, you're, the underlying that is the fundamental question and what we've seen after Egypt and after the Arab Spring 
And all of these things is what impact is this going to have? And it's back to what impact is it going to have on the people in power and how do we hold them accountable? Who is accountable? And is this a new tool to hold I, them accountable? I think it's a good question because, and I was going to ask Jake, I mean, isn't the, the risk of the sort of the theme that links those two questions is the extent to which this is a world, world that is governable? That, um, I mean, that's what you're driving at, that, that people will object to what their governments are trying to do. So if you have a, we might not all be organic farmers of one, but if you have a, um, a, a, an age in which people uh, are more individual, is this fundamentally ungovernable? Is this what we've seen in America over the last two or three years? Well, I mean, just talk, you know, about the Arab Spring point, which I just want to pick up a couple things here and bring it back, actually, to what Julia said. You know, why is Egypt different from Libya? In Egypt, you had a strong basis in civil society. And there was an opposition that had developed ties, that had, you know, developed in, uh, under oppression, but was really effective, separate from the tools of technology, over a period of years. And then those people used the tools of technology incredibly well. You actually had people in the opposition who were simply more sophisticated and smarter than the government was about using these tools. In Libya, you had neither factor. You didn't have a civil society. I mean, you had a government that was sufficiently repressive that it had stamped it out and for various other reasons. And in that situation, technology doesn't do very much for you at all. And in fact, they didn't have much technology. You know, not many people were connected to the internet. So, but I think the, the crucial point is that these technology tools, you can, you can organize a demonstration on Twitter, but people aren't going to come unless they have demonstrated some commitment and some connection in real life outside of cyberspace. And is it going to have any impact on the vote in the Senate? What's the vote, which vote in the Senate? Well, say the Iraq war. Oh, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> no, not necessarily. I mean, obviously, if you're talking about, you know, what had happened now, I, you know, I don't know if the world's changed that much. I mean, there's an argument that Malcolm Gladwell makes that, you know, these are weak ties, that these social media... And, um, you know, I don't... It, it's a very hard thing to test, but I think what the sort of cyber-utopians and the cyber-pessimists agree on, I'm neither, but what the cyber-utopians and the cyber-pessimists agree on is this point about civil society. There's no substitute for it. And if you don't have it, the technology doesn't get you very far. And if you do have it, the technology can have this magnifying effect. Yeah. Very good. We're racing towards the conclusion. I see hands here and here, so let's... Um, um, hi, I'm Sabina Utam. I've just got a comment, basically, about the... Um our discussion now, will individuality win over the mass age? I mean, when we speak about individuality, are we talking about the consumers or the influencers? The people who basically, like the Frankfurt School spoke about um, the culture industry and enlightenment as a mass deception. So the individuals always being basically influenced by these gatekeepers who are at the top of the culture industry and filtering information that comes down to the consumers. Is this what you're accusing Jake of? <laughs> <laughs> let's, um, let's have a few, a few more points. Uh, Theresa Wise, um, until last, uh, last year I was um, head of strategy for the Walt Disney Company for Inter International and um, I, I, my observation is that, um, apart from Jacob actually, that there's been a little bit of a, a one lens view of, of, it, of the international markets and if you take, you know, China's just overtaken uh, Japan as the, um, the, the second most, the second largest economy. The Japanese, third largest economy, they love brands. They don't always love Western brands, they love their own Japanese brand. There's plenty of mass market to go and it's a pretty affluent 
affluent um, uh, country. Look at Russia and the BRIC countries. They're all brand crazy. There is a lot of mass market there. China's gone nuts for the luxury brands. Um, I, I think we've, we've just taken a little bit too much of a UK-US view of, of, of a world which is going in, in other directions where emerging markets love some of the American, UK and indigenous brands. That's a great point. And just hand the microphone to the lady behind you. I'm still Tang. Yesterday we talked about solving poverty. Today we solved about, you know, solving sickness in banking. And we've thrown a lot of stones at China, but it's not all black and white. It's a country that has managed to lift in one generation more people out of poverty than any other country in the world in the history of the world, as well as a place that's managed to build a hospital and isolate the H1N1 virus in under two weeks. It's a, the country that has the biggest commitment to green energy in the world. So my question to you is the way that they've done that is they've managed to look at country first, family second, and the individual is last, if not even not important. That's how they've managed to achieve those things. So in the light of individualism being really a Western value, is there a way that we solve poverty and banking by setting aside our individual values? Oh, those are, well, okay. We're going to get a round of applause for that one. Let's, um, um, does anyone else want to come in? Because we are drawing to a close here, so I will get people to pick a few of those points. Uh, We'll see one, one more here. I'll just go around the panel and ask them to pick a few of those points and maybe make a concluding remark, and then we shall... Uh... Hi, it's uh, Joy Ledeek, and actually I just wanted to pick up on both these points, which, um, which is, is individuality, in fact, going to be a very destructive force in our society if you look at us, uh, the Western world, in relation to China, Japan, and so forth, where it doesn't have so much value? Very good. Well, look, those are, that, I, mean, I think it's a, good, it's a good question to end on, um, which is the world to come, a globalized and non-Western world, the rise of the rest. And so how does this fit into this? Let's do a slightly different order. Let me, let me ask Peter his, uh, his thoughts and concluding thoughts on the discussion. I think, I think um, individuality is a lovely thing, but it's a bit of a Western luxury to respond to what Joy said. And it does create vulnerabilities in a sort of um, winner-takes-all competitive get-rich-first, which is the great Chinese uh, tag, get-rich-first, then think about those things. It creates vulnerabilities, and you always have to be able to balance the, the concerns of the individual, the, the claims of the individual, as against that of a society as a whole. And false individuality makes that more difficult. You know, the cult of individualism makes that more difficult, you know. I want my version, you know, my hundredth version of a coffee. And so we must stamp that out and let individuals who are real individuals fight their corners and fight it sometimes against their governments because sometimes the, those demands do create real vulnerabilities for society. And an open society is more vulnerable. Very good. Chris, you know, from a, from a, I guess from a business standpoint, the way we would approach it, and I, I know this topic has gone geopolitical more than, than business in the last few minutes, but I, I think one of the things, to just give you a real-world perspective, is that the center, I don't care where the center is, the center may be in London, it may be in, in New York, it may be in Shanghai, maybe wherever, they have a view of the world that probably is a bit monolithic. They think it can, you can get homogenous, you can get the same message out to, to, to everybody across the globe. And it's one of the first things we do to people that come to the U.S. is we say, look, we have 50, little, 50 different little countries in the U.S., and you can't do that in the sense you have to tailor our messages 
from, from this, whatever the central point of view is, we have to then take it and interpret it, in a sense, individualize it for, for a region. We may, we may not go exactly down to each person in, within a market, but what it does allow us to do is say, look, we, you, you've got to recognize that you can't speak one voice to everybody at the same time. You've got to personalize it. And that's one of the things we try to do, we, we endeavor to do, is, is take it and, and, and personalize it and use that to our advantage. Jake. Um, well, just on the, on the China point, I mean, I think it's, it's possible to, to uh, admire China's economic achievement in, since, since 1978 and, you know, to, to acknowledge that being an unfree country makes it easier to do certain kinds of economic planning, but at the same time not grant at all, which I don't, the idea that, the, that ideas of freedom or freedom of expression or individuality are Western impositions. I mean, is Ai Weiwei, the you know, Chinese artist who's in jail, not really Chinese because he's criticized the government? I mean, it becomes a, you know, a, 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 a kind of ridiculous conundrum if you say, well, anyone who's asked for freedom in China isn't expressing Chinese value. There are hundreds of thousands of demonstrations around China. This tremendous dissatisfaction that goes with this economic growth. And I certainly feel that unless the, unless the government finds a way to adapt and allow democratic input and allow greater free expression, it will not only be un, unable to continue that growth, but it will be unable to uh, kind of flourish in the modern world. But that is, you know, that's a, that's a great debate. And Janet, our, uh, our chair for the last two days, what's your final thought? And my final thought, I'm with you on that, actually, I have to say. And that I, I'm not sure that mass and individuality are mutually exclusive. Um, I think we're, we're a little bit in danger of doing apples and oranges here, really. So um, it's, you know, there is a mass, and there is, we're talking about, when Teresa's talking about brands still being attractive and still being valuable, I don't think anybody's doubting that. It's the means, and this is, this is down to Chris's targeting, it's the means of communication, perhaps that's just not mass any longer. It's not one message um, for everybody. Um, and there are things that are good for the mass and we all, you know, as a mass want to live everybody out of poverty. It doesn't mean there's no room for individuality. It's just about whether individuality has been swallowed up by the mass. And I think it's, it's quite optimistic that it hasn't. I feel quite optimistic that it hasn't. Very good. Well, look, my task as chair is to sum all of that up. I'm not even going to try. Uh, suffice to say that this is um, a discussion, jazz rather than classical, but in the manner of the best Twitter stream very diverse, but everything's interesting. So um, I want to thank our, uh, thank our panel and thank all of you. So let's have a round of applause. Wrap up the conference.